in that land at, at a particular time. Now, most of the people singing it have had a few too many drinks, and they don't have a clue what they're singing, but they sing it. All right, turn to 2 Samuel 23. This is our final sermon in the David series. And we are told at the start of this section that these are David's last words. That's probably not his official last words, but maybe um, as king he made this statement to his people at some point near the end of his life. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. We spent over three months in this series on the life of David. Why study David? Why devote 15, 16 sermons to this particular character in the Bible? Well, primarily because God so highly commends him to us. The Apostle Paul, in a sermon preached in Pisidia, recorded for us in Acts chapter 13, reminds his audience of what God said about King David. God says this, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. We study David to learn something about how a man lives rightly in relationship with his God. What do we find in David? Well, we find, first of all, a man who hungered for righteousness. He really made it a point in his life, a matter of internal striving to order his life around the will of God. 
And that's good because we at times need to be exhorted and stirred up to do that. We, we get lazy spiritually. We get or, or tired. It's a real hard battle spiritually to try to order all your life around God. And then we got this world around us that, that continually seeks to influence us in a different direction. David loved God's law. He aspired to keep it with his whole heart. It gave direction to his life and his actions. We preached on Psalm 19 in this series, and I want you to remember a statement that David makes in that psalm. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In Psalm 119, which it's debated whether it's from David or not, but it's a Davidic-like statement that I'm about to read. And, and they're all over the place in Psalm 119. But in that, the longest of all of the Psalms, we come across these words. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Now, as Christians, isn't that the kind of example, the kind of life that we want to set before ourselves and study and say, how can I be more like David? A man who hungered for righteousness, but a man humbled by sin, seeking gospel grace. A man who knew law, but a man who also knew grace and understood how to relate those two ideas together. David loved God's gospel grace. He found in it his grounds for acceptance with God. Now, the law was what guided him on, on how he should live. But it was the gospel that told him who he was, a child of God. It was his identity. It brought stability and security to his relationship with God. The law will never do that for us. Why? Because it's so demanding that we always fall short of it. The gospel is where our security and our stability comes from. They're not opposed to each other, but they do function differently in our lives. He was fully aware of his limitations. He never looked to the law as a means of gaining acceptance with God. Think of what he said in Psalm 32 after the exposure of his sin with Bathsheba. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered up. That's the blessed man. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David strove to order his life around the law, but he understood that his blessed state came through God's mercy and grace freely bestowed upon him. Today we're going to look at David's final words. And uh, I've broken the text down in, into three headings. First, David's humility. Second, David's source of strength. And then third, David's purpose in his life. David's humility, our first point. The psalm, or the, the, the section of, of 2 Samuel starts off, Now these are the last words of David. 
the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David writes these words near the end uh, of his rule, or at the end of his rule in Israel. He's an accomplished king at this point. Think about some of the things that, that this man has done. They're recorded for us throughout First uh, and Second Samuel uh, and in First Chronicles. He's proven on the battlefield. He's done some magnificent things. He defeated Goliath. He defeated the Philistines. He's established his kingdom. Something that Saul failed to do. He brought peace to Israel, uh, a leading kingdom in the world. Kings came and, and sought his advice. And you especially see that in the, the, the reign of his son Solomon. Kings and queens from all over the world coming to learn about their kingdom, Israel. He was a leader of religious reform in the land. He returned the ark to the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and he laid the plans for his son to build the temple, that central place that galvanized Israel's religious and covenantal commitment to God. So, what often happens when a king gets to the end of his days and he's accomplished he starts to pat himself on the back, right? Look at all the things I've done. What a great person I am. But you don't see that in David. David uh, was surrounded by pagan kings who thought of themselves as descendants of the gods or godlike. That certainly was the case with the Egyptian pharaohs. They thought that they were descendants and intermediaries between them, the, their people and gods. They were godlike. Babylonian rulers were the same. You know that with Nebuchadnezzar. And we also find that same trait in the Roman rulers. But David is very mindful of his humble origins. He reflects upon his anointing. And he keeps that before his mind even in his latter days as a king. And I think it's important for us as Christians to remember our conversion. Remember our origins. Remember what we once were before we had Christ. So that we don't get too big for our shoes. He says he's the son of Jesse. A mere man of Jewish descent. He is a son of Jesse. He is not a descendant of the gods like Pharaoh thought. Just a man. His position of power, he declares to us in this oracle, uh, or in this heading of the oracle, uh, was gifted to him by God. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. He didn't work his way up the royal ladder. God gifted it to him out of nowhere, basically. He did nothing to deserve it. It was an act of the divine will. He was chosen and anointed by God. He was raised on high. He never climbed the ladder to success. He was graciously placed there by God. And that's the same for us 
as Christians. We, we didn't work our way into a, a, a greater level of morality so that we could come into Main Street Presbyterian Church. No, God gifted us with a desire and a longing to, to, to unite ourselves with His Son and with His people. We are humble, humble people. And God occasionally reminds David of these origins. God keeps him focused on this, especially at times when he starts to wander from it. He sends the prophet Nathan to him. Turn back to uh, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Verse 8. When God is about to initiate this covenant with David. Oh, David, wow. What a... You must be really special, David. God's making a covenant to, with you. You must be better than the average Jew. Uh, what have you done? Well, when Nathan the prophet comes to him about this covenant that God is going to make, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, he says this, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, you're just a servant, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies. Don't pat yourself on the back, David. Praise me because I am the source of your position and your power. He needed to be reminded that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 about the nature of the church. Um, why, why do we see so few powerful, prosperous men in the church? Paul says, God chose what is foolish, weak, low, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why were the majority of the apostles uneducated, working class fishermen? Paul was an exception. He was very educated. But he, God had a different way of humbling him. Why were these men that way? Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Why did God choose the foolish, the weak, and the low? So that no human might boast in the presence of God. Why did God choose David? The youngest of Jesse's children. The shepherd boy. So that David would not boast before God. Now, he also allows David to sin. Turn over to the last chapter of this book of 2 Samuel. What does it record for us? One of the last events in his reign, one of the last decisions that he makes, he decides to do this census of his people. And we don't actually know why it was wrong, but it was sinful. In chapter 24, verse 10, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. 
Why does David, why does God being the sovereign God who could protect him, why does he allow David to wander into sin? Well, I think we have some indication in our confession of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, on the providence of God, section 5, says this. And I wonder if you, you know, you, you cry out to God using the Lord's Prayer. Father, keep me from sin. Protect me from wandering in the paths of unrighteousness. And yet you find yourself sinning at times, right? Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, section 5 says this, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God often leaves His own children for a time to manifold temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts. David and Bathsheba. David and the census. Why? The confession says God, God leaves them to the manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to humble them and then to raise them to a closer, more constant dependence upon Him for support. Certainly, that's the case in the life of David. He was a man of humble origins who could only thank God for the positions that he was given. God raised him to the position of king. But when we're humbled, it does what to us? When we're lowly, when we feel our own sinful tendencies, it makes us desperately depend upon God. And that's where we need to be. That's how we should operate as creatures to our Creator. And that brings us to our second point, David's source of strength. He had his position from God, but how did he, how did he fulfill his role as king and father, ruler of Israel? Point two, David's source of strength. Humility drives us to dependence. Look at verse 2. Then David writes, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, but why, is his, why are his psalms so sweet? Because the Holy Spirit is operating in and through him. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. David indicates for us that not only his royal position was gifted by God, but also his power to fulfill his duties was from God. Is this a reference to the Trinity? Well, Matthew Henry, one of our great uh, commentators of the, of the Old and New Testament seems to think so. Look at what's written here. It's kind of like what we find in the New Testament with uh, especially Paul, this Trinitarian type formula. He says here, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken, a possible reference to the Father. The rock of Israel 
has said to me. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 5. This is a very instructive little passage of Scripture because it teaches us as, as followers of Christ how we're to think about the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.1 For I want you to know, brothers, says the Apostle Paul, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what's he referring to here? The Exodus. Passing through the, the divided Red Sea. Then he's going to start talking about Israel in the wilderness. Verse 3, And all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Christ. Christ in the Old Testament. Christ operating, sustaining bringing salvation through the signs and symbols of Mosaic worship. It's not a different religion. It's the same religion told in a different way. Preparing us through animal sacrifices for one who sacrifices himself. So, we can see why Matthew Henry got to the point he got to. There's the Spirit, there's the Father, and this rock Paul calls Christ. The triune God was walking with David, empowering him as leader and as psalmist to do the will of God, to speak the word of God. When he was on the battlefield, when he was making administrative decisions for the kingdom, God was with him. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, we read of David's anointing and, and that, that pouring of oil upon his head was sacramental. It, it was meant to picture something that we couldn't see, the Spirit of God descending upon him. 1 Samuel chapter 16 Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, the anointing was picturing in something that he could see and feel and touch what God was doing in a mysterious, invisible way. And that's how the sacrament of the Lord's Supper works. We can see and feel and touch bread and wine, eat it, and it nourishes our body. And God is saying simultaneously, like here, His Spirit is bringing us to Christ and nourishing our souls on all spiritual blessings in Christ. That's how sacraments work. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on the Holy Spirit says, when the Spirit comes on an individual, he clothes himself with that person's life, conforming it to his own 
purposes. Why was David an effective leader? Why did David's heart pant after God? Because the Spirit rested upon him. And David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the Spirit in abundant measure right from his birth through His ministry, on the cross, in the tomb, at the resurrection. You remember how He was conceived? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we can trust Him and have every confidence in Him. David is guided. He's empowered by the Spirit and he's a man guided by the Word of God. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Why listen to David? Why listen to Moses? Why listen to Isaiah? Why listen to Matthew or Paul or Luke? Why listen to these men? We listen to them. Because God has inspired them to be His mouthpiece, to be His prophets, to speak divine truth to us. They're writing under the direction, by the direct inspiration of God. And this is, a, this is an important teaching for us to understand as Christians. Why do you listen to the Bible? Why is the Bible a reliable source of truth for you? And our response is, I believe that the men who wrote the Bible were speaking on behalf of God. And that's why it's really important to me. You may not agree with me, that's okay, but we both are going to have to stand accountable to God for how we handle His Word. And, And I am convinced. I don't even necessarily know why I'm convinced of this, but I am thoroughly convinced that the Bible contains divine revelation. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, says this. He says, know this, and we need to know this as Christians, know this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by His Holy Spirit. Echoing the Apostle Peter's testimony is the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. If the Bible is just a book of religious sayings by a bunch of men, then it is a waste of your time. Why does the Christian church hold, so, hold the Bible so dearly? Because we don't believe that. We believe it is a revelation from our Creator and our God. We are convinced of that. David viewed the Bible as a message from God, which is why he desired to study, to know, and to live it. Psalm 119, he says, Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. 
And he's following a direct initiative from God for kings. And Deuteronomy 17, Moses legislates how a king over Israel should act. And this is what he writes, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of of this law and these statutes and doing them. One of my great fears for our generation of Christians is that we have the Bible most accessible to us. You don't even need to lug around a Bible anymore. You just pick up one of these and you go to Bible. And you go to your app store, and guess what? You can download a free Bible. We have access, but we are one of the most biblically illiterate generations in the history of the Christian church. During the Reformation, it was forced on them. They didn't have the Bible. We're making a choice to not read our Bibles. That's going to be dangerous. That's going to be very, very dangerous. I've been talking to my children about reading the Bible. They have to come to a knowledge of these things themselves. They have to see that the Word of God is more to be desired than gold. That it's worth more of their time and commitment than a video game on their phones. We need the Spirit of God to stir us up in this way. David was a man thoroughly committed. He didn't always live by it, He failed, but he got himself back up, and he continued to commit himself to the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, if you have just been negligent in your Bible reading, get back on track. It is the Word that revives your soul. There's so much fake news out in the world Read that which isn't fake news, which has been proven and tested time and time again. Read your word. Read God's word, sorry. Last thing I want to point out, and very briefly, is David's purpose. Why does God do what he does for him? Why does he raise him up to power? Why does he grant him his word and and his spirit and his protection? Well, he says, in the middle of verse 3, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. There is a tremendous blessing in your families when you fathers who are called by God to lead your family, when you lead in the fear of the Lord. There is a tremendous blessing in our churches when our pastors, elders, and deacons who are called to lead, lead in the fear of the Lord. There is a blessing upon nations when their rulers lead in the fear of the Lord. David, that was his purpose. If you want to think about his his purpose was to lead in such a way that his wife, for him, many wives, his children, his citizens in his kingdom 
we're brought closer to God. Now, what a way to live your life, right? What if we all dedicated our life to, to enriching those around us, husbands and wives, if you committed to strengthening each other in Christ and your children in Christ? Now, you're, you're going to fail at times because you're, you're, you're going to be humbled by God and He's going to teach you of your own weaknesses. But what if that was what you kept pressing for, you kept striving for? He wanted to rule well, to be a leader who drew his people closer to God. And he talks about his family in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? It seems strange because you read David's story and his house was a little dysfunctional. But he must have taught them something because one of his sons was Solomon. And Solomon wrote the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Solomon, Solomon had his own faults, but he did have implanted in his heart from a young age a love for the Lord. Solomon writes this in Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Sounds similar to what David is saying. David was a man who knew sin. He knew rebellion in his own heart. He was acquainted with original sin, as he talks about in Psalm 52. From my mother's womb, I was brought forth in, in iniquity, a reference to original sin. But he's a man who experienced the sweet grace of God in the gospel, the forgiveness of his sins. He realized the need for God to create in him a clean heart, as he talks about in Psalm 52. That circumcision of the heart, as it's referred to in the Old Testament. The New Testament speaking of taking that stony heart away and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And David sought to implement that even with some discipline. Look at the end of the the section. Verse 6 and 7. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. A reference to, to a form of spiritual discipline. The church uh, is the kingdom of God on earth, right? So what do we need to do? We need to keep a watch that we're stirring each other up, that we're positioning ourselves like David, where we're encouraging each other to love and good works. And then when there's these elements of wickedness in the church that are striving in an opposite direction, in rebellion, that we remove them. It's clear in the New Testament, the doctrine of excommunication, so that the church as a whole is given an environment where it can thrive and flourish. What do you do if you have a nice rose garden or flower bed? You weed out the weeds. Why? Because what are they going to do if you don't weed them out? They will take over. And we've seen in our history as Presbyterians that the weeds of theological and moral error can take over and destroy So David warns us we need to execute discipline. All of these things David uh, represents for us are realized in the kingship of Christ. When we look to Christ, we see one who encourages us to godliness. 
We see one in the, in, in the book of Revelation threatening to take away the candlestick from the churches that are not following Him, bringing discipline. Why? Because His goal is for the church to walk with God. And that's what He encourages us to do. That's what we learn from David, brothers and sisters. That's why He's worthy of 16 weeks of sermons. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for King David. We thank You for him because we can relate to him. You know, we, we see ourselves hungering and thirsting for the things of God, and then we see ourselves doing foolish things. And David is no different. And it encourages us, Lord, not to, to walk contrary to You, but to, to strive to walk step by step in relationship with our God. And I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would descend upon this congregation, that we would be a people who long for the things that David longed for, that we would love the law of God, but we would find our identity in the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.